Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the bonus episode of The Yarn. We'd like to start by thanking everyone that supported our Kickstarter campaign. We never in a million years thought we'd reach 250% of our goal. Wow. I can't wait. I can't wait to create the best possible season two for you all. I am so excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Yarn is a production of Backpack Media, and we're so excited because this week marks the release of our second show, Stories from School. I think you're really going to dig Stories from School. And as an added bonus to our bonus episode, the, the guys from Stories from School have provided us with a story from Katherine Sokolowski that Nerdy Book Club friends are going to absolutely love. So after this episode of The Art, stay tuned because at the end, you get to hear Catherine's story. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to The Yarn, a Backpack Media production. This season, we looked at one book, Sunnyside Up, from all angles. Because while two names appear on the cover, there are a lot of people who help make it a reality. Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? It's a pretty standard icebreaker game. You think of two truths about yourself and one lie. It is a painfully awkward game that causes me to sweat just thinking about it. Oh. Here's an example. I'm going to give you two truths and one lie. Let's see if you can figure out my lie. I finished one book during my four years of high school. I was once arrested during a campus protest. My first car was a 1983 Chevy Camaro. Any guesses? The lie, of course, is being arrested during a campus protest. Going to jail is one of my biggest fears. I try to avoid it at all costs. The whole time I read Sunnyside Up, I thought about that icebreaker game, wondering how much of Sunny's story actually happened, and how much did they make up. In our bonus episode, we'll look at the truths behind Sunnyside Up. So, yeah, so what's real? What's real in the book? That's what everyone's going to want to know. What is the real stuff? What is the, the not real stuff? So, what about Gramps? Gramps is very real, and he is still alive. Yes, yes, hundred years old. This <laughs> he's year. a hundred years old, um, and he uh, he he was just he is this great guy. And what happened was when we were kids, his our grandmother, his wife died, and so he moved down to Florida to Vero Beach, where all his brothers and sisters were living. They were from a big Irish family, and so as they all got older, they all retired to this one over 55 retirement community and it turned out to be a a terrific thing for them because they all uh, got to live together but um I just remember the first time you know driving down to visit them from Pennsylvania we kind of show up the station wagon of kids and uh kids were not allowed to stay even in the condos unless you had a visitor pass and there would be old 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 people walking around asking to see your visitor pass because we had to tag it on us we had to have it as a badge and I, that just struck me so funny like kids weren't allowed like we were like pets like we needed a dog tag or something um so that was com- the strangest thing ever and also we could only go into the pool at certain times because obviously it was you know for they didn't want children being allowed yeah um, it was that was always the at, at all the public pools when we were kids, like adult swim was always a thing where you all the kids would clear out and like the adults would have to swim. And as we show in the book, it was usually 
like maybe one person would swim, but even if there was no, there were no adults there to swim, they would still kick all the kids out of the pool for like an hour. Yeah. And so it was even more amplified at the retirement community where it was basically, it was all adult swim except for like an hour when the kids were allowed in. Yeah. It was so funny. And, and of course, like all these things that you think are stereotypes that happen when you're in a retirement community were totally true. You know, we would, uh, we would go to early bird dinner all the time. Which I loved, and so we would go as kind of a pack. So the the two sisters who live upstairs in the book, I kind of based on um, two of my aunts who lived down there, um, my aunt Katie and aunt Agnes. And whenever I would go to visit them, even into my thirties, we would if we go out to dinner, they would always tell me to take the roll home and put it in my purse and don't forget the pat of butter because I might be hungry later. Um, like they'd never quite shaken off the whole depression baby thing about food. Um, actually, they weren't depression babies. They were, they lived through the depression, actually. Right. That's yeah. how old they were. Um, <laughs> but that was so funny. And uh, the minute we we would land and visit grandpa, they were over at the door like a shot with something they had made and making the, you know, crocheted uh, stuff that they would make for the church bazaar they would always give to me. And uh, I loved I loved them, actually. And one scene I was sad that didn't make it into the book because of just page constraints was one thing I used to do with them was when I would go to visit them by myself, I used to visit down to Grandpa a lot in my 20s by myself every year, maybe twice a year. I would always spend a day with my aunts and just watch soap operas <laughs> on the couch and they would just do a, they would give me this very sharp-witted analysis of like that doctor is no good he's always cheating on his wife and um so we had this whole scene with Sonny sitting and watching soap operas all day so but it got cut <laughs> <laughs> and uh and what was there to do down at the retirement community you know what there was like there was nothing to do there was like you could go to the clubhouse and get a soda um They did have a reading room, which was full of Harlequin books, (laughs) which I did start reading a lot of Harlequin books around when I was like 10 or 11, because that's all there was to read. They had no kids' books, obviously. Um, They had shuffleboard, which I never saw a single soul ever playing. No. I think it was just, but it was a requirement of that time. Like, old people, you need to have shuffleboard. That was it. Yeah. And they had tennis courts, but nobody really played tennis. They just all would hang out at the pool and talk to each other. And then, uh, and they'd walk. And then the big, the big thing for us when we were kids, it was Big Al. The alligator. The alligator. So there was this big alligator called Big Al. They thought it was so hilarious that they named him Big Al. It's just what all the old people called him. And he was this old alligator who would just sit on the greens. So there was a golf course that like ringed around the retirement community because everybody played golf. And he would just come out from one of those golf ponds and he'd just lay there all day. And they didn't um, chase him away or anything. Animal, you know, service didn't pick him up. And I'm sure there were variations of Big Al over the years, you know. They just called every alligator they saw Big Al. Um, And so that was funny. And uh, there was also a no pets allowed thing, but there were cat. If you looked closely at the windows, everybody it was like a known secret that there were cats living with all the old ladies, and the old ladies outnumbered the men like ten oh, to yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing I, I was I, I was thinking back on, even though it's Florida, it's Vero Beach, 
I don't think we ever once went to the beach. We ever went to the beach. I don't I don't know what that was. We must have stayed there for like a week that first summer. I'm like, I don't think we ever went to the beach that whole time. No, we just we just got there and we just stayed in the retirement community and we would swim in the pool and walk around. Yeah, the adults would talk. That was that was an era where the adults talked among themselves and the kids were expected to go entertain themselves on their own. Yeah, and we were just we were no cell phones, just leave after breakfast, show up around lunch or at grandpa's house or one of the, you know, we had three aunts and uncles living there, maybe four at one point, just show up at somebody's house, get something to eat and, uh, or their condo, (laughs) (laughs) come back, have dinner, then go over to another aunt's condo or uncle's condo for dessert. Um, and we would collect golf balls. Of course we had huge buckets of golf balls that we would leave. And then I'm sure my grandfather just turned them in eventually. (laughs) Um, I thought one thing that we did include from real life in the book was the character of the old lady who runs away. Um, her name is uh, Mira. Is it Mira? Yeah. So when Mira, there's an there's an old lady in the book, Mira, and she is constantly running away. And that actually was based on our great grandmother, our Mima. So what happened was when uh, my grandfather's sisters moved to Florida, they brought their their mother with them who was already 99 or 100 at the time, and she lived in New Jersey in the same house for the majority of her life. And, you know, she was already starting to get some Alzheimer's. And when she got to Florida, it was so discombobulating that uh, she didn't know where she was. And so she would run away, you know, sort of take off in the middle of the night or during the day when somebody wasn't watching her and just kind of head head for the road. And as kids, we thought it was kind of hilarious um, in a dark way, like, Mima broke out again. Like, she's off and running. You know, and I'm from the adult point of view, it was like, oh, no, where did my mother go? But I just remember thinking the first time I heard it, I was like, go, Mima, go. Because um, Mima was like 4'10", like 70. Like a bird, a like, tiny little bird. Like 70 pounds ringing, which is this tiny little her- human who had just shrunk down as an old person. Um, so that was real. That was funny. And then... Um, and then uh, with Sonny's, Sonny's friend. Yeah, what about Buzz? So Buzz was kind of inspired by uh, my best friend, Adam, who um, he, um, he actually was from Puerto Rico, but he married a, his wife, Ruth, is Cuban. And um, so I knew a lot about um, her family's um, experiences when they came over from Cuba. And... But Adam was a huge, or is a huge comic book fan, and so he and I met when I was uh, 21, and we came from completely different backgrounds. I came from, I came from very rural Pennsylvania, and he had grown up in, in Queens, in New York City mostly, and all over New York City, and both of us in the 70s, and we both loved comics, and uh, we worked at the same company, and every single day at lunch, we would I would go to his office, and we would share a turkey sandwich and from the deli because we were poor, and it was our both. It was my first job out of college, and we would um, talk comics, and he would introduce me to his favorite comics, and um, it was just such a great bonding experience. So I kind of based based buzz on Adam. So yeah, and didn't you say that he actually? learned how to read English. Yeah, so that whole thing was he had, uh, Adam had um, had gone back to Puerto Rico when he was little, and when he came to the United States, he had some 
issues learning how to read English, and so he used to use comics, and he would always tell me that Superman, you know, taught him how to read, and I just, I just love that. It seems so obvious in retrospect, but um, yeah, it's wonderful. Sunny Side Up is part fact and part fiction. It's a complicated book that is fighting itself into the hands of kids that live complicated lives. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to season one of The Yarn. We'll be back in the spring with our new series, The Unraveler. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. If you have any ideas for possible topics for The Yarn, shoot us an email. Theyarnpodcast at gmail.com. We are always looking for crazy adventures to share. I'm super excited to share with you the newest show in the Backpack Media lineup, Stories from School. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe on iTunes. You can visit Backpack Media's website at bkpk.media for more information on all of our shows. Have a great day and enjoy the show. From Backpack Media, I'm Trevor Muir, and you are listening to Stories from School. This is a show where real people tell real stories from their school experiences. All of us, whether rich or poor, girl or boy, old or young, from the city or the country, all of us went to school in some way, shape, or form. It wasn't always fun. In fact, it was sometimes awful and boring and tedious and challenging and enlightening and scary and an adventure. It was school. We all did it. And if you're a teacher or a parent, you're still doing it. And quite often, it can make for some really great stories. Kind of like The Breakfast Club. Bad haircuts and all. I once ran into one of my all-time favorite teachers at the grocery store about 10 years after I had his class. I saw him and I went up to him and said, Mr. C, it's so great to see you. And his eyes shifted a little bit, like he was slightly uncomfortable. But then he quickly smiled and said, Hey man, how's it going? Mr. C called me man. He had no clue who I was. And I was a little hurt by it. This guy is the reason I love science, and I loved every second of his class and how he made learning fun and exciting. Mr. C was a huge part of my life in middle school, and yet he had no idea who I was. I forgive Mr. C for not remembering my name. He had hundreds of students before me and thousands of students since. But I only had one of him, and people like that shape you. Here's a story from a current teacher named Catherine, and she shares about a teacher that she had as a young child who had the same kind of impact. Enjoy this story from school. I was the kind of kid in school who was shy, quiet. Um, You might have forgotten me if you were my teacher. Um, I don't like talking to crowds. I don't like talking to people. And so I tended to identify the most with teachers who built relationships 
who kind of gently nudged me out of my comfort zone, but did not force me to do anything I was not comfortable with. And my first grade teacher um, was a woman by the name of Miss Jan Tuck. And I had Jan Tuck her second year of teaching. We were a tiny rural school district, about 800 people. And I basically thought she walked on water. <laughs> um, I think I wanted to basically be Miss Tuck. And I loved her classroom. I loved it because when you would go in it, you felt like you were home. She was kind, considerate. She built relationships with all of her students. Um, if kids got in trouble, and I remember specifically that there was a couple boys that did often, she would pull them aside, she would talk to them, she would give them hugs, ask them what was going on in their lives. I loved her so much. As a little first grader in her classroom, I thought she was amazing. Even so, I wanted to be her. I clearly remember, um, as a first grader, asking my parents for Christmas and then my birthday in February for um, button-down, like, Oxford cloth shirts and skinny belts because that was what Miss Tuck wore. And she wore her shirts untucked with the belt on the outside. Um, and so I would wear my shirts untucked with the belt on the outside. And she never commented on it. I'm sure she noticed this little six-year-old trying to dress as her, but she never said a word. Um, I began to play teacher at home that year in first grade. My mom bought me a red grade book so that I could pretend to take grades. And my stuffed animals were my class. When I left her class in second grade, I had Mrs. Feeney. And I still remember one day in second grade, and it was about... Um, the winter time. I'm not sure why, but Miss Tuck came to me and she asked if I would want to read aloud to her first grade class. And I wanted to say no because I'm shy. I was very shy as a child and I couldn't imagine reading aloud to a whole class. But Miss Tuck had asked, so I said yes. And I went home that night, and I thought about what book I should possibly read to her class. And I picked my favorite picture book at the time. It was called The Monster at the End of This Book, starring lovable furry old Grover from Sesame Street, written by John Stone. And so I sat at home, and I got my stuffed animals in my bedroom, and I sat in front of them like a teacher would, and I held the book like a teacher does. And I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced. And the next day, I went to Miss Tuck's room, and I sat in front of her first grade students, and I was nervous. And I remember she stood to the side, and I started to read, and I was very quiet. Um, and she encouraged me, and so my voice got louder. And the great thing about first graders is that the more animated you are, the more into it they are. And so if you've seen this book before, you know, Grover is a terrified as a monster in this book. And every time you turn a page, Grover, you know, yells out, you turn the page. And the kids would laugh and a kid fell out of his chair. He was laughing so hard. And I just remember feeling like this is powerful and I could do this and I want to do this. And it was there in second grade that I started to believe that one day I would be a teacher. So 
if you fast forward 30 years, I think about her often. I hope every year that I can impact my students the way Ms. Duck did for me. And while I don't notice students wearing Birkenstocks and my typical plain white or black t-shirt with jeans or khaki pants, I do notice that they start to develop a love for what I love. They love books. They love writing. They love sunrises and sunsets, plain M&Ms. Fortunately, most of them don't love Starbucks coffee the way I do, but they like to tell me every time they see one. Um, they tease me when they see my papers are piled on the table in the front of the room because they know me and they know that it can stress me out and they ask me if they can help. I share myself with my students as much as I can, just the way that Ms. Tuck did for me. My students do contact me outside of school. Um, sometimes just to tag me in a photo of a sunset they saw that night on Instagram. Um, sometimes they drop by their old fifth grade or fourth grade classroom to say hello when they're leaving high school for the day. And sometimes I get more. I treasure their emails, like the one I got from Michael last year. He was preparing to graduate from high school, and I hadn't seen Michael since fourth grade. He had moved from our town shortly after I had him as a student. Here's what he had to say. Hey, Miss Sokolowski, I don't know if you remember me, but you were my teacher about eight years ago. I'm graduating on Sunday, and I wanted to tell you that you were the reason I'm as successful as I am. Going into fourth grade, I had read one book, and you knew that I just needed to find the book that would interest me, and I have been a huge reader ever since. I'm going to Iowa State University next year to study journalism. You may not remember me, but I remember you. You changed my life for the better, and I am eternally grateful. I lost touch with Miss Tuck because she moved and she got married and I wrote a blog post about my favorite teacher and I called her my Miss Stretchberry with a nod to Love That Dog by Sharon Creech and I said that I wish I could track her down but I couldn't find her because she had left and her name had changed and one of her former colleagues that was my teacher gave me an address they thought might work it didn't months went by I didn't hear and then I got an email from her, and she had sold her house in Virginia, she had moved to California, but her former neighbors got my letter, and they sent it to her. And so now I'm in touch with her again, and we're Facebook friends, and she sends me these emails that she's reading my blog, and she's proud of me, and it's just, it's a big thing.